Morning, church. How's it going? It's a good day. I'll tell you what, there are times when you come uh, to the gathering and you realize that, um, I mean, God is always doing work, but there are days you feel it. You know, uh, being able to see a family come up here and talk about the hope that is represented in this season that we're about to go into, uh, hearing our, our worship team so beautifully articulate the joy of the gospel, being at the center of what we are about to celebrate as a people, it's special. Something that God does. So keep an eye on that uh, as we enter into another phase of our time in the gathering of worshiping together. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. No woohoos? Come on. Yeah, I'm telling you, you should be excited about that because the story begins at the very beginning, right? Um, we are entering into a very new series, okay? And it is centered on the concept of Advent. We were talking about it a while ago, and it is here. For the next five weeks, in fact, we are going to be working through different elements of what is at the center of why we celebrate Advent. So I thought today what we would do is, well, first we're going to pray. And then we're going to talk about what the meaning of Christmas is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for who you are and for what you have done. You are a good Father. Your word is good. Uh, your spirit inspired it. Your son is at the center of it. Lord, as we enter into this time in which we approach your word humbly, would you allow us to, to have understanding? God, would you uh, bring our hearts to, to worship you and to know you if we do not? And Lord, would you be glorified and honored in all of the things that are said? We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. What is the meaning of Christmas? That is what I found myself kind of debating in a little existential crisis yesterday that was brought on by a, a film from 1999 called Mickey Mouse, Once Upon a Christmas. I was watching it with my two-year-old and my six-year-old, and, and uh, my heart kind of fell, even though I wasn't surprised, but I was disappointed, as the narrator chose to uh, define Christmas in the following way. He said, so in the end, it's love. That's the reason that Christmas is more than a gift-giving season. It's a time with our loved ones that show that we care when families and neighbors come together to share. Now, you guys, I'm not trying to be a humbug right now. I'm really not. Uh, we would not disagree that love is an essential element of Christmas, that the holiday is more uh, pleasant when we have the addition of family and friends. But is that a sufficient answer to the question? What is the meaning of Christmas? It's not. Thanks for answering. And what I'd like to do as we head into this brand new series is to simply ask the question to the believers in this room to challenge us to get outside of our comfort zones, to challenge the traditions that we have during this season, to ask ourselves, what is the meaning of Christmas? For the sake of our hope, and for the sake of our joy during this upcoming season, let's commit to doing that together as a family over the next five weeks. Now, I'm in a room full of believers. In fact, many of them are involved in youth ministry. And so you know that the clever answer to every question ever asked is, 
It's Jesus. There you go. Hey, this is good. Okay. Yeah, man. Why are we here? Jesus. What's the passage about? Jesus, right? So it's really good. That's a very good answer. But I'm going to ask a little bit more of you today, students. Um, Maybe if you're feeling really confident today, you might answer that question by saying, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus, right? And I'd say, amen. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. But is that all there is to it? See, friends, if an unbeliever in Stanwood this, this holiday season comes up to you and says, what is the meaning of Christmas? Is it sufficient for us to say it is about the birth of Jesus? See, the reason why Christmas is, uh, has a meaning in our heart is not simply because it's the celebration of Jesus' birth, but because the birth of Jesus carries the significance of an event which holds a greater weight in our hearts than any other event that had ever taken place in human history before the day that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen? So that's what we're going to do over the next five weeks. We're going to let it, uh, uh, we're going to see how Christmas, the Advent season, ought to affect our lives as a people on a God-given mission. I'm going to hope in the process that we're going to commit ourselves to sharing what we learn to the families and the neighbors that God has strategically placed in our path. And we are going to find a restored joy and restored hope in this Christmas season. Can we do that together, church? Can we do it together? Oh, man, it's going to be great. I'm telling you, it's going to be great. All right, so now one of the reasons I'm really excited about this series, and I hinted at it a couple weeks ago, is because when we are talking about the coming of Jesus and where it appears in Scripture, when we really study that, what we're going to discover is that it's not just a New Testament concept. Right? There are so many scriptures as we unpack that that actually speak to the Advent. It is not just for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. See, the Old Testament is a treasure trove of stories and poems and wisdoms and prophecies that can teach us a lot about who God is. They can teach us a lot about how we ought to live our lives. But Jesus himself tells us that the Old Testament is primarily the fulfillment of what God had always been doing since the very beginning to bring about the circumstances of Jesus. Jesus's life. John chapter 5 says this in verse 39. You search this. This is the words of our Lord. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. For if you believe Moses and all the things that Moses wrote, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. In Luke chapter 24, after the Lord had resurrected, he meets a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're all discouraged, and he tells them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Don't you wish you were there like that day? Wouldn't that have been cool to hear that from the Lord? So as we begin this study of Advent, what we're going to do is we're going to understand the significance of Jesus' coming, and then we're going to commit to discover how Jesus is actually central to the entire Bible, not just to the New Testament. And this is the case in point. I already told you. Today we're going to be all the way at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3. And the reason why is because we are going to try and answer this question as, as over the five weeks we're going to try and discover what the meaning of Christmas is. Today we're going to start by asking ourselves the question, why do we need Advent? Why is it a need? 
We're going to find it in places that we don't expect. So let's start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The least Christmassy Christmas servant you will likely ever hear in your life. And we're, we're going to build some context first. You know I love to do that. Um, there is a lot of text, you guys. Please be patient. Please be patient with me as we work through this text because it builds such a rich picture of the things that God has done. I'm going to take you back to chapter 1, and we're going to summarize some of the things that God had done from the very beginning. It was Pastor Alistair Begg who summarized what had happened before time began. He said this, before there was time, before there was anything, there was God. God made the world, he made it for his glory, and he made it to help us to know him, to love him, and to trust him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In John chapter 1, it says this, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So the first principle that we see laid out in the creation narrative, bottom line up front, is that in the beginning, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all persons of the Trinity, one God, created the heavens and the earth. All things, everything that was made, it was made by God. And so the resounding focus of the very first chapter of the Word of God is that he desired that his creation would be aware that there is one source for the universe and every Everything in it. It's the spoken word of God. And the rest of chapter one affirms that God says, Let there be light, and there was light. He said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it was so. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Vegetation and plants and fruits and the moon and the sun and the stars and all manner of living creatures, God speaks, and they become so. And all the while, as God's creating, he gives this commentary to his creation. You guys, so much fun. Six times, he says, as he's creating, he observes the universe around him. And what does he say of it? Oh, it's good. Man, we, do, we, we, we take words in the English language, and we just chuck them out there, and they have no meaning to us. God defined what good is. When he says the universe is good, he doesn't mean, ah, good. He means good. Supremely good, reflecting the intrinsic goodness of the creation while reflecting the goodness of its creator. And yet as the story progresses, what we're going to discover is that creation hasn't reached its, uh, its climax. It's not complete. See, God is absolutely working everything towards a specific objective. We see in the vegetation and the plants and the fruits and the moon and the sun and the stars and all the creatures a purpose for providing for sustenance, for providing for the pleasure and for the wonder of the pinnacle of his creation. Do you know who he created it all for, Christian? He created it for you. Man, don't get a big head. <laughs> we'll get to the end of the story. Don't get a big head. But God created all things, including humanity, for his glory. And as he crafted man in all the ways he describes them, it becomes so clear that as he's crafting this universe, he had in his mind's eye his people. We know that because it says in verse 26... Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Friends, when God made you, God said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man, crafting him with his own hands, showing his sovereignty and forming him out of the dust, showing his, his warm and intimate connection to mankind by breathing out the breath of life into our nostrils. When God made you, Christian, he made you in his image, in his likeness, as a living monument to all creation to display the glory of God to the rest of the world. And we know that means, it, means we're made in an image that it allows us to accomplish feats far greater than anything else in creation. And from the beginning, we know that we were loved and we were set apart. And the author wants us to know that too, because in verse 27, he says it twice. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You too, ladies. Woo! Something. I'm telling you, he made you too. And he blesses both male and female. And he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with my glory and subdue it. And have dominion over everything. And God saw everything that was made now. And behold, now that it possessed his image bearers, what is it? Oh, it's very good. It's very, very good. And so that was just chapter one. When we get into chapter 2, we get a clearer picture of this beautiful design that God had intimately placed into his creation. See, he made mankind with a purpose, didn't he? He created us, and he, he created a garden for us. He created a home that it says is full of all of the food that we could possibly need. He given us a purpose, not just in dominion to rule over the earth and to spread his glory by means of populating the earth. No, he gave us a purpose in the order and in the way that he created us specifically as men and as women. He gave Adam the unique function of leading and tilling the soil. He crafted Adam's body in a way that could work the land from which he had been formed. He gave Adam the job of overseeing the animals and naming them and taking responsibility for the garden, keeping it secure and ruling in God's name. Hold on to that one. Man, he gave mankind, a, uh, men, a moral responsibility for the family. And we know that because God gives the very first command ever spoken to humanity in verse 16 and 17. He says, to Adam... To Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, friends, the woman wasn't there. God was showing us through his scripture and in that moment that the spiritual authority of the home was given as a gift to Adam. But here's a fun fact. When for the first time in human history, God observed that something was not good in creation, what did he do? See, among all the creatures of the earth, there was not found one creature that was fit as a helper for Adam. He was incomplete, and it was not good for Adam to be alone. He was inadequate to accomplish the goals that God had set in creation for Adam. And so God did not choose to create another creature for Adam. God did not choose to create more men to accomplish the goal. No, God made who? The woman. <laughs> that was a woo. There you go. 
So God, I'm, we're going to read it because it's important. So God, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the place with the flesh, and the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into woman from his flesh. He brought her to the man, and he presented his daughter to Adam. And Adam's so thrilled, you guys, you know what he does? He starts spouting off poetry. <laughs> it's super romantic. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He gave her a name. It was woman. Hold on to that. God makes woman. She's the perfect fit for Adam, his supreme helper. Here's another moment in which our language falls so much short of, of describing something so immaculate. Man, would you take out of your mind the negative connotation that you have built in there because of our own sin and the baggage that we bring from this world to look at the word helper as a bad and demeaning word? The Holy Spirit is described as helper, is he not? God himself is articulated in Scripture in so many ways as the helper of Israel. See, God gave humanity a mission, and he says that that mission could not be completed by man alone. No, that man needs someone to come alongside him and complete in every way the way that he falls short and bound together in flesh and by marriage. God describes this essential element of his binary creation as helper. It's a good word. A woman is given purpose too. She is, by her very nature, to fill the earth, to bring glory to God, to generate life in the garden, to establish emotional intimacy and communion within the family in a unique way that only women can, and to oversee the bringing forth of new life into the world. There is no woman without man but there is no man without woman. And as God establishes his purpose with these unique roles, they're bound together, they're united, they're given unhindered and unadulterated access to be with God for eternity. And God says at the end of all that, man, things are very good. Whew. Isn't there part of us, like when we read something like this, that kind of wishes that there was no chapter three? I don't know, but there is. Now that serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. Doesn't tell us how he got there. Doesn't tell us why he talks. Don't worry about it too much. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may, or we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Here's a couple observations for you. Um, when the serpent says, did God actually say, this is both disturbing and flattering. Because what it does is it smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. <laughs> The serpent first seeks to cause us to doubt the word that God has spoken. Things do not change. This is the way that the world still operates. 
Second observation, the woman chooses to take God's command and, and she elevates it in its severity. She says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, which God did say, but then she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And so what we see in that is humanity has been adding their own law to God's commands for millennia. This is a behavior that is not foreign to us. But on the other hand, there's something really disturbing that's happening here because, see, who was the one that was originally given the command? Was it E? Was it the woman? No, it was Adam. Adam was entrusted with the command. He communicated it to Eve. So are we sure that she was the one that came up with this assumption or was he a part of it? And our suspicion, it's only going to grow when we find out where Adam is at this exact moment in time. Either way, things are getting really weird. All right, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit, and she ate. She took, and she ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves some loincloths. Okay, more observations. The serpent's second move is a deadly one, okay? He seeks to have us deny the judgment of God and to question the goodness of God. Because to deny death is to deny the word that God had previously spoken to Adam, and to appeal to the eye and to the pride of the woman was to imply that God was withholding from them something that he knew was to be desired. So the serpent's really telling her, a good God wouldn't do that, would he? We also see that the fruit appealed to the eyes of the woman. It appealed to her intelligence. It appealed to her desire to be greater than God, the God who had made her and who had made a situation that was very good. See, she wanted to be wise, and yet Proverbs tells us that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Is there any wisdom in what she's doing here? She took and she ate. But that's not the worst part of it. See, the worst part comes next. I'm going to remind you of what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It tells us that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sin. See, ultimately, it was not the woman who bore responsibility for sin coming into the world. Who was it? It was Adam. Adam, who took the fruit from his bride. Adam, who, who followed her lead when he was told by God to lead in his home. Adam, who watched her being tempted. Adam, who did not lovingly correct her when she misspoke and elevated God's command. Adam, who did not strike at the snake that was deceiving his beloved wife, the daughter of God, who had been presented to him to protect. And sin came into the world, and death through sin. No, things have gone terribly wrong now. 
And mankind knows it. Man, the knowledge of good and evil, it just turns out to be the knowledge of guilt and shame that sin brings. In chapter 2, we were told that this couple, they were naked and they were not ashamed before one another. And yet here immediately, their eyes are open. And what are they? they? They're ashamed to see the fullness of each other. And they're ashamed to be seen by God. The imagery of the fig leaves is supposed to be, man, it's supposed to be a picture of inadequacy, you guys. Inadequacy to cover ourselves, the inability to, to cover up our shame. Things have gone terribly wrong. And here we go. They hear a sound. They hear a sound of God walking in the garden on a cool day. And the man and his wife, they hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, not both of them, singularly. He called to the man. And he said to him, where are you? Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And we wonder, what is Adam thinking about? As if this is the first time that God would have noticed that Adam was naked. The relationship between man and God had already been severed and, and mankind is now already willingly offering half-truths to the creator of everything, actively seeking to hide his shame from God. This is insanity. The insanity that, the sin, that sin provides in our lives. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? Now here's where it gets comical if it wasn't tragic. The man said, the woman, the woman who you gave me, God, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and so I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and so I ate. So judgment comes swiftly and without hesitation, and it's directed at the serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Man, there's no negotiating with the stake, no questions asked of the, cre or the creature, and we've got to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. Note, um, from this point on, as we're reading the, the rest of the curse, Adam and the woman are going to be frustrated in unique ways in which they had previously been responsible to God. See, the woman, in verse 16, we find, is now going to experience pain in childbirth. That was a blessing, and it was going to be the tool by which God brings the whole fullness of God's glory to the entire earth. And yet, now this blessing is going to come at the expense of great labor and great risk. The marriage relationship is never going to be the same. There was once unity in marriage, bound together in flesh, love and support as, 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 as man and wife. Now the wife is going to have a desire that is contrary to her husband. She's going to seek after the role that her husband has in marriage consistently. And the husband, designed to care and to love and to protect his wife, is now going to rule over her in a way that dominates and suppresses Man, do we, do, we, do we not see that playing out in our lives today, in marriages as they struggle right now, in, in, in genders in general, as we seek to understand how we're supposed to work together? 
the earth would now be cursed. The world would now not produce in abundance what it did in the garden. And it's going to be by the toil and the labor of that man, by the sweat of his brow, that he's going to be able to make ends meet. In verse 19, though death did not claim them immediately, God left no doubt that death would claim them in the end. And ultimately, man, ultimately the indication is that it is not only death, but it is eternal separation from God from the relationship that they had previously had that God called very good. This is what it says in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the, God, uh, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a visualization that's very intentional. To say there is no way back in. All ways are guarded. Never would we return. And so, church, that's the beginning of our Advent series. <laughs> Super encouraging. What's that got to do with Advent, Ben? You asked. I'll answer. I'm glad you asked. This is one of my favorite parts of the story that we're about to talk about because it, it, it expresses how quickly and intentionally God acts when he re-enters our narrative, even though I will remind you that he never left. See, when we go back to verse 8, God walks. He doesn't run into the garden. You ever notice that? He appears in the same way that he always had in the past, a God who is never changing. He's fully aware of what had tra- transpired, and he's, he's still fully embodying the love and the kind of tone that has always characterized his relationship as a loving father. And now he is coming to confront his wayward children. Where are you? He asks Adam. It's a quote. The question was God's gentle way of bringing man to explain why he was hiding rather than expressing ignorance about the man's location. Shame, remorse, confusion, guilt, and fear all led to this man's behavior, and God was letting him know that there was no place to hide, and there never is from God. Man, God doesn't make a single declarative statement as he's speaking to his image bearers, to this, the children that he loves. Instead, the God of order and peace, the perfect father, allows Adam and the woman the opportunity to confess and to repent of the thing that they have done. Do they do that? No. Man, Adam and Eve, they show a reluctance, the same kind of reluctance that we have today. And, 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 and now the time for judgment has come. Because he is a holy and righteous God that must judge sin, God doesn't act indecisively. He does not hesitate. He doesn't ask a single question more. He moves to strike. And who does he punish? The serpent. The serpent. Because God knew where evil resided in the garden. And because God knew the source of the woman's deception and Adam's failure, and God strikes the first physical blow against a mortal enemy and declares the way by which that enemy will ultimately be destroyed forever. That's the reason why our passage is a Christmas passage, by the way. 
Because buried in the tragedy of humanity's fall is the account of not only why we deserve God's wrath, it is also the instant, overwhelming, and unmerited grace of God in the form of his promise to fix our failure. Did you see it? In verse 15? Because in 14, the physical servant would now bear the humiliation of living out his existence on the ground. But in 15, what we find is that God turns his attention on the spiritual serpent, the one who is described in Scripture as the tempter, the evil one, the god of this age, the roaring lion, the great dragon, and the ancient serpent, the one we call Satan, the devil. And that wicked one, God, He's not going to abide, and we know it based on this scripture. God declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, God's describing this battle, this enmity that's going to rage between the forces of Satan and the offspring who God now promises will be preserved through the woman. But see, more importantly, is that that offspring will be preserved through this battle of the agents, through the line of the woman, for a singular purpose. Verse 15, we read bruise and we read bruise, don't we? Two bruises. Another, man, we're doing it all day long. Here's another example of the English language letting us down. See, we get the impression of this even salvo that's kind of happening here, don't we, when we read that literally. That is not the intent of this word. No, when you're looking at that word head, when you're looking at heel, what we actually see in the context of this scripture is that a singular man, he, will one day appear, and when he appears, he will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And the only response the lowly and ancient serpent will have is to nip at the heel of the offspring. This relationship is actually described in Colossians chapter 2. So it's exciting. We're heading there. We're going to read more about it. Verse 13, it says in chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And when he did that, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, the offspring of Satan who previously had a grip on this world, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them, crushing their head in Jesus. So Paul understood, the New Testament authors all understood is that what God was promising in this verse all the way back in the beginning is a promise that lives to this day. It is the very first glimpse of the gospel, the grace that saturates Genesis 3 and the the hope that we get to experience now during this Christmas season is shared in the anticipation of the promise and the coming of God, the serpent crusher. Man, one of the coolest elements of the story of redemption is how God has been working since the beginning, Christian. Since the very beginning to reconcile and restore that relationship that he called very good. And he promised to do that seconds after judgment came. 
So don't think I'm making this up, though. When we look at the rest of the text, there's some really cool examples. This is the fun fact portion, so stick with me, okay? As we, as we close the, the end of chapter 3, we're going to see more examples of how Adam and Eve even understood this to be the case. Because as soon as the curse concludes in verse 20, Adam has this moment to reflect, not just on his punishment that he had been rightly given, but what God had promised. See, and his only redeeming action in this entire chapter Adam does so in the fact that he renames his wife. Did you catch it? We haven't used her name yet, uh, at least the one that you're familiar with to this point, because the Bible hasn't used her name yet, has it? Adam could have named the woman anything, you guys. Could have named her deceived one or the usurper. What does he name her in verse 20? He names her Eve. He names her the life giver, mother of all living things. Perhaps Adam understood that if forgiveness was to come, it would come from the hope of the promise that would be produced in the womb of his wife. And likewise, before sending Adam and Eve out of the garden, what does God do? Does anyone remember verse 20 or 21? What does he do? He makes clothing for them, doesn't he? Those fig leaves weren't adequate. They didn't cover up the, the shame. They weren't, they weren't going to be uh, enough for them. So God creates adequate clothing for them, but he showed them something very specific in that moment. He showed them that the cost for covering up their nakedness and the shame would become from the, the blood spilt in order that they would be covered up. That blood must be spilt in order for the shame of humanity to be covered up. And you wonder if our perfect father had the image of Jesus in his mind. If you remembered it in that moment, that the death of his son would have to happen in order that your shame and my shame would be covered up forever. It's a Christmas passage, I'm telling you. From that point on, humanity is waiting in anticipation for the day that the, the serpent crusher would come and that creation would be restored. And so all of the Old Testament, as many as stories as you have seen and read and loved, all of them are saturated in the idea that God is ultimately bringing about the climax of the restoration of humanity. And he will do so through who? Through Jesus, through the serpent crusher. That is where we derive our hope and where we see the meaning of the season of Advent that we are about to begin. So I know that was a lot, church. Uh, so I'm going to remind you of a couple things really quick and then, then we're going to call it a day. The first thing I'm going to remind you of is, is remembering Advent means remembering the need for Advent. I hope you see that at this point. That today's story was centered on Adam and Eve, but, but I hope that you understand that in the, in the testimony of their failure, we see that all sin and fall short of the glory of God, that all share in the sins of Adam, that all have shown the same type of rejection in seeking after our own wisdom and our own, our own ways and bowing down to our own idols, just as Eve bowed down and worshiped herself and worshiped the idol of the tree and the fruit on that day. We all require rescue, and some of you in this room still require rescue. 
So all of us this Advent season have the perfect opportunity not to just consider just the birth of Jesus, but the necessity of that birth and the monumental miracle that it was when God accomplished the feat of the word becoming flesh. Advent is about remembering the need of Jesus and celebrating the work that God had done so that the serpent crusher would come. So if you want to enter into the season with the right mind, and we already kind of talked about that a little bit today, praise the Lord. If you want to not be distracted by the need for the perfect presence or the, you know, listen to the catchy music or being disappointed by not recapturing the magic of Christmas that we experienced when we were a child, man, the only way that we are going to be able to ignore those distractions and, and, and focus on what is real is allowing our hope to be defined by remembering the need that we have for Advent for the work that God has done to bring this about. Now, the second point is very similar to the first. Um, the beginning of the curse of sin was also the beginning of the good news. So that's a big deal, yes. It's a big deal as we consider the scope of Scripture. See, the joy produced at Advent begins with us remembering the great punishment that we faced, that immediately God set out to reconcile. There are people in this room that, that have to remember that our hope and our joy is centered on the work that God has done through the whole scope, uh, of, scope of Scripture to reconcile us by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We need to remember that in the midst of suffering and disappointment in our life, that hope only comes from nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And if you're a believer in this room, then the Advent season is the perfect opportunity for you to commit to remembering that perfect, or that, that perfect act of God and re realigning your spiritual compass to point towards the Lord. And if you don't belong to Jesus in this room, if you have never at any point heard the gospel or failed to acknowledge the truth of it, man, this is a season. As we're, as we're looking through all of these scriptures that point to Jesus, that bring us context to what he would ultimately do in his life and his death and his resurrection as we center our minds on what he is yet to do, the second advent the day in which he will come back and he will make all things new. This is the season for those of us that do not belong to him to hit our knees and to reject the example of Adam that we had just read and stop trying to justify our sins before God because in his word he has proven that the only way that we will be reconciled to him is if we place our faith and our hope in Jesus, the serpent crusher, the one who lived the perfect life that we could not live, the one who died the shameful death that we deserved, the one who rose again to prove that when he said that all we need to do is trust in him to have faith in the Messiah and we would be restored to life, when he rose again, he proved that those words were not faulty. They were true. And if you haven't believed, then this church implores you to repent and believe in the gospel. Friends, this is the hope of Advent. It's the beginning of our season of remembrance. Let us begin it together by praising God for the work he's done and hoping in the work that he promises he'll do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for, for who you are and for what you've done. 
And we thank you for your word that, that evidences clearly how far we fall short of your glory. Lord, how we require to be reconciled to you. We have sinned. We deserve wrath. But in you, Jesus, we are promised life. By your grace, Father, we have been given the chance that through your Son, in faith in him, we would be given the gift of everlasting life and we would be given the spirit that, that produces in us both joy and hope for what you have done and what you are yet to do. God, would we be a people that would live in the light of that hope? And would you now, as we enter back into this world and as we, we, we carry the truth of your word into it as, as light and salt, God, would you give us the boldness to proclaim the gospel to a world that at this moment is actively perishing? And God, would you compel hearts that more would believe that you are Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified and honored, and that more would be added to the number of your church? And we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.